You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. And finally, our third sponsor is 988. The Oklahoma 988 Mental Health Lifeline, 988 is a direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with trained behavioral health professionals that can get all Oklahomans the help that they need. Learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com. That's 988oklahoma.com. And now, let's get into today's episode. Please welcome to the podcast Dr. Carl Hansen, who is the 2022 recipient of the OKCPS Wall of Fame. Which is right? Did I say that right? I think I said that right. <laughs> Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you very much. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here with you today. Excited to share your story. Uh, before we do get into this, to the side uh, of your profession and, and the amazing things that you've been doing along with all the research that you do down at OU and, and, and the job that you have, give us a little bit of a backstory. The way we generally do this podcast, we set some context. So tell us a little bit about kind of where you grew up, going into school. I mean, we've got plenty of time, so you can go into as much detail as possible, and then we'll, we'll slowly get to how you get into the profession you have. Sure. Well, I'm happy to go into those details, and then if I begin to bore you, you can just let me know, and I'll Editing's move on great. to something else. But <laughs> yeah. um, I am a Oklahoma City native. Um, I attended public schools here uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate to have a, wonder, wonder, have a number of wonderful role models uh, both as, as teachers and then as my parents as well. Um, my mother was a public school teacher in the Putnam City School District, so not in Oklahoma City public schools, mm-hmm. but in the PC District. And uh, she uh, never knew anything but hard work. Uh, my earliest memories of her were uh, getting up in the morning. She would get us fed, get us to school. Uh, she would go to school herself. She would come home. She would make our meals. She would clean the dishes. She would grade papers. She would do the laundry. And then I would fall asleep every night listening to her, the sewing machine as she made our clothes. Wow. And so, you know, that was that was her life. And that's where I, at the earliest stages, began to understand, you know, what goes into the kind of work that she does and, and did for many years, over 30 years. Um uh, I finished high school here at Northwest Classen, mm-hmm. and then I attended college locally as well uh, at uh, Oklahoma State University, and then was fortunate enough to uh, be accepted into a dual degree program at OU in Oklahoma City, where I pursued both a medical degree and a PhD okay. uh, at the same time over that interval. Wow. And then completed later a residency in obstetrics and gynecology, and then did um, subspecialty training and reproductive endocrinology and infertility, where yeah. I became an infertility specialist, and that was at the University of Washington in Seattle. And then uh, when I was done there, um, looked at a number of different opportunities, but was really excited to have the opportunity to come back to OU, um, 
partially, of course, because I had family here at the time, which was a big draw, but also because I recognized there was an opportunity to build an REI program at OU. Um, those services existed at OU, but they were uh, fairly small. I felt that there was a need in the community and was really attracted to uh, have the opportunity to, uh, to build something uh, that would include yeah. a research program, teaching programs, uh, and clinical care. That's, uh, that's pretty epic, and there's a lot that we can dive into there. Um, so growing up then, obviously, you know, you're around mom is just extremely hardworking, right? That's all you see is her hardworking, and it's kind of, it's like servant servant stuff right it's not like she's not working for herself she's working hard for others which is pretty special to have that experience to see that in your own house like you know mum is taking care of us but she's also grading papers and she's teaching and there's something there about being around a teacher as well like that the, the passion that they have to just educate and give to you know give their 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 time and, and their skills to educating others there's something really cool in that yeah, and a lot to dive into in, yeah. in those statements. I think, you know, the, the first is the work ethic mm -hmm. that you learn from being around um, someone that puts in that much time. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom being a math teacher, she always wanted me to take a number of math classes, which were frequently hard. And this is a community where everyone knows each other. So yeah. it's not like things escape my mother's knowledge uh, if I'm not performing well in school or right. putting out my full effort. and. You know, so I always did a lot of homework, and um, you know, at the time, it made me very angry that I had <laughs> so much homework. But you know, the, the thing to, to keep in mind about education in general, of course, is that when you get done with school, there's so many things that you learn that you'll never do again, right? I yeah. mean, no one ever asked me questions about math anymore, or a lot of the science I've learned over the years. Mm -hmm. What you're really learning is learning how to learn you're learning how to become a self-directed learner by practicing doing it over and over again. Because everyone, when they get out, whether they're, they go into medicine, they go into another field, they, whatever you're doing, you have to learn skills to perform that job. And yeah. are you able to do that? And it's that practice yeah. that helps you figure out how to do those things. I think the other thing you mentioned that's really incredibly important too is this um, devotion of time. Uh, and effort that goes into being an effective teacher. And in spite of the fact that I've talked with you about all the things my mom did, I was always impressed by the amount of time that she invested in others outside of work. So I grew up with people coming over to the house to be tutored. And, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago what had helped me be successful, I would have told you that I worked really, really hard. And that, that's accurate. I worked hard then and I work hard now. But I've come to understand that a big part of my success is really simply the product of the investment that others have made in me. That's huge. And then it's helped me understand as an educator myself that those investments that I make are what helps individuals develop in their careers. Yeah, it's, it's incredible what teachers do, right? Regardless of what you teach, just that, that, like I said, you know, the tutoring side as well and just having that time to invest in people, especially in Oklahoma, because, you know, if you don't live under a rock, you'll know, you know, like teachers don't get rewarded, I think, as, as much as they should. And that's a whole political thing. And I don't really want to dive into it, but you'll know that. 
Uh, sure. The other thing is when you're growing up around that, it's very common for teachers' kids to become teachers too, right? Mm-hmm. So when did, did you have like a, was there a moment where you're old enough to think, you know what, I'm going to go to college, I want to do this. When did you think that, you know, education is for me, but it might not be in the traditional school mm-hmm. education sense, it might be in the medical field sense? Yeah, there were a number of different formative events. So uh, I, uh, I think I first became interested in medicine when, as a teenager, I was undergoing a physical for football and someone heard a heart murmur, uh-huh. the person who was doing an exam. And so I underwent a number of medical procedures, including a heart catheterization, where I was diagnosed with a problem called patent ductus arteriosus, which is where some large vessels that go to the heart are connected together. Okay. They're normally connected together before you're born because of the differences in the way the blood flows in utero compared to the way the blood flows after you're born, but mine had never closed. And so through that diagnosis, I ended up having a a heart surgery. You know, now they do those things with just little catheters, but at the time, I'm in the hospital for a few days with a, oh yeah, with a big incision that goes from about the middle of my chest all the way to the middle of my back, which is a big deal for a, you know, 17 year old um, to have something like that done. And it, it, that made me uh, really very interested in medicine. And then at about the same time, I started learning more about this new technology in vitro fertilization. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in genetics. And I thought, what an opportunity through genetics to improve the human condition. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by that technology. So I decided I wanted to go to medical school and I was also very interested in research, and that's ultimately um, how I got involved in doing research when I was in college, and then later decided to pursue a PhD at the at the same time through a dual degree program. And uh, yeah, you know, throughout that whole time, you know, a big part of what you're doing is is teaching others. You know, that's the 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 as, as you mature in any kind of learning. Yeah. That's where you be, you transfer from becoming the the learner to becoming the mentor. That yeah. should be really the natural evolution of right. the process we all go through, where you're teaching someone else to do those things. And yeah. you know, when I when I talk with medical students about those things, I try to impart on them how important that is. You know, you're you're going to be the one who's in the position to give back. Are you able and willing to do that? Will you invest yeah. in the development of others? Yeah, and the, I mean, just that specialty and and that the response that you were getting or the way that you felt I'm sure after having that heart surgery and that surgery and you're like you're looking at the person who's just done this to you right and you can't you're so thankful for everything that they've done but then for you to now be on the other side right and be able to you know through the IVF and the research that you've done you're able to give people you know because that's a big deal right people can't have have a family Mm -hmm. and, and they come to you and they do this I mean, to have a part in that, like, they're lifelong, you know, they're, they're going to be grateful for you forever, right? Like, it's, it's, it's a really, really cool thing to be involved with, and I'm sure you get cases every day and people every day that just, like, thank you, and they did this. But for me, it sounds like there's a lot more to it than just that, right? It seems like through, you don't just go out and do a bunch of research because you just like to do research, right? You, you clearly have a sense of meaning and a sense that you want to leave a legacy during your time. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way I describe it a lot of times to medical students is that 
we should be about much more than just learning the standard of care. The standard of care exists today, and you must learn it. You must understand it. But if that is all we do in our careers, then we are not advancing health. Right. We're not improving outcomes. And so how do we improve? Only through research and clinical trials is yeah. the only way we, we get better. And I would love it if I had a clinical trial available for every person that walked in my office. Uh, you know, a thoughtful trial that says, we don't know which of these treatments are better, you, but you can help us answer that question by participating in a trial. Yeah. And you have to have a passion for it. Your whole team has to have a passion for it because research is not something that I do by myself. Mm-hmm. All my partners fully buy into that as well, and I have great research staff that work with me mm-hmm. um, to help try to move that mission forward. But yeah, you're right. It's a lot more than just the personal satisfaction of either doing a project or writing a paper. It's it's doing it with the end goal in mind. Yeah. Uh, but there's no doubt, too, that there's a great deal of satisfaction in what I do. And uh, probably I get more direct feedback in, in terms of how I'm doing than so many other areas of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, every day I am reminded how we're performing. You know, we have patients that are pregnant, patients that are not. And you celebrate those victories and you suffer with the families when yeah. you, you can't get things to work. But, um, yeah, definitely feedback on a very regular basis as to how you're performing and how, yeah. how your clinic is performing. Yeah. Tell me about kind of the, the dual degree that, that, I mean, that's just, I don't know anybody else who decided to do something like that to the scale that you've done it at. So tell me about kind of how that well, worked um, out and everything that you went through. Yeah, through sure. Well, phase. there um, are a number uh, of um, medical students every year who choose to pursue a dual degree like that. I would say, um, Typically, in the College of Medicine, out of a class of 150, 160 medical students, there's a few that pursue a dual degree. That may be three to six, um, uh, depending on exactly the year and how many people show an interest and an aptitude in that pathway. It's absolutely not for everyone. You know, usually the way that program is run is you do the first two years of med school with a given class. And then you go into a lab and do several years of research and then finish your, your degree, your PhD, and then you go back to medical school and finish the third and fourth years. And so there's no doubt it's a real commitment. You know, you, um, you leave your class behind, and that's hard to do because you feel like everyone's passing you by, but you, you recognize you're doing something different. Uh, and then the, the feedback that you get in the lab is so different than in clinical practice. In clinical practice, as I mentioned to you, in my own clinic now, I've won some and lost some every day, yeah. you know, it's, but I've got answers. Mm-hmm. When I'm in the lab and I trained in a basic science lab, I spent, this is back in the 1990s, but I spent most of a year trying to clone a gene, which is something that is probably hard to describe briefly. but. Today, the whole human genome has been sequenced, and if I want to get a DNA, a, a fragment of DNA sequenced, I can spend five bucks and get someone to, you know, do a gazillion base pairs. But back when I did it, I yeah. was doing this all myself, and I could spend a couple of days sequencing, you know, three or four hundred base pairs. It's yeah. just, you know, really small, small amounts. And to to keep doing that day after day, week after week, when an experiment isn't working, it's a whole different ball game in terms of delayed gratification to um, to do that. And so you, you have to have a mindset that you enjoy it. And um, I did. I love working in the in the basic science lab, too. Yeah. And, that, and that's not what I do now. Now what I do is all clinical research, mm-hmm. but I trained in a basic science lab. 
Yeah, technology is amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of just things. all the stuff that's happened now, right? Like you said, just it's so much, I guess, more advanced now, right? You get so many more answers in a short period of time because of technology's evolved. Sure, all the things I learned are yeah. almost obsolete. The vast majority of them yeah. are because we have technologies that are so superior, and yeah. the the throughput of some of these technologies today are things we couldn't have even dreamed of back then. Yeah. So when you go through that, and you finally, you know, you get your you finish your, your schooling and you're on to your, do you think I'm going to do my, my own practice or do you go work for a hospital? How does that work to the next phase? Sure. So when you finish your training, regardless of what that is, you know, for me, it was finishing an REI fellowship. Uh, the, the options would be either you choose to go into maybe a private practice setting, okay. maybe you're your own boss or maybe where you, where you set up your own business or maybe you work with a big group practice. And maybe that's a group practice that is employed by healthcare, where you're employed by a healthcare system. Uh, or it may be that you want to stay in an academic environment, mm-hmm. uh, which could be a place like OU or a place like where I was at the University of Washington. Obviously, there are academic medical centers all over the country. And that's a big career decision to decide yeah. what you want to do. For, for me, it was never really a question. I knew I wanted to stay in an academic medical center, but certainly... Many people leaving training choose to go into clinical practice only, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we need is full-time that, is clinicians that to pay as well. off their bills as well. Because there's more, is there more money down that route at that thing? Because a lot of people look sure. at doctors and they're like, you, sure. know, you guys drive fancy cars and play golf all the time at country clubs, but you've worked. For <laughs> I'm sure there's 16 some that do that. years yeah. to get to where you're at, basically. Yeah, um, yeah, there are some that do that, and I would yeah. say, generally speaking. If you're in a pure clinical practice and a private practice, then you're you are going to make more than sure. if you're in an academic practice. But that's that's the trade-off you know going into right. it. You know, some yeah. of my some of the dollars I earn in clinical practice mm-hmm. are used to help subsidize my academic time, okay. and I, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I mean, and for people listening, REI stands for reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Correct. Did I say that yes. right? Endocrinology and infertility. Yep. God. You're really close. Yes. Close enough. Um, that again, like that's. I think we were talking briefly before we came in here, and we have someone in this building who's had a personal experience with you, and I think it was one of your patients, which mm-hmm. is incredible. You probably didn't think that when you were coming in today to have that experience, but uh, that's just one of the great things about what you do. But going into that side, then diving into all of the research and 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 just the things that you've been able to find out and, and the breakthroughs that you've had, tell us a little bit about those things and stuff that you're most proud of that, you know, people generally don't hear when they just read your bio or if they're mm-hmm. going to the event that's coming up, you know, the, the event that you're being inducted into this wall of fame, like they might not, you know, understand how deep and how good and how amazing the things that you've done are in a 30 second bio. Right. So you can, sure. you don't strike me as someone who really wants to talk about themselves a lot and be like, look at me, I've done all this thing, but I'm giving you that op- opportunity and it's okay to tell me how amazing you are. So please go ahead. <laughs> Well, I, uh, you're correct. I um, am not one that prefers to talk about myself a lot. Um, I think it distracts from the bigger, the bigger issues. But I'm happy to talk with you about some of the trials that I've been involved in that don't just involve me, of course, but a number of centers around the country. Our, our group here at OU has been uh, part of a cooperative group funded by the National Institutes of Health uh, called the Reproductive Medicine Network. And we've done a number of different trials. Um, some of the ones that I think really have been the most impactful, uh, I'll talk to you about one of them, and there's another one that's ongoing now that I think is really important too. But 
Um, one of the things that we know is that women with obesity, which is a common problem in our society today, have more difficulty getting pregnant. They have more pregnancy complications. And the thought process has always been when you're seeing a patient who is, is struggling with obesity, you need to go lose weight. And if you lose weight, it will fix all these problems. Mm -hmm. But understand that knowing that a person with obesity has these problems and a person without it does not is not the same thing as saying that if you lose these, this weight, that your outcomes will be better. Yeah. And so this is a huge debate in our field uh, because of the increasing problem with obesity. Uh, and so uh, while there have been a number of trials looking at this, one of the large ones that we did, led by Rick LeGros at Penn State, was looking at whether or not a weight loss intervention would actually improve outcomes from standard treatment. And the primary outcome we were looking at is whether the woman gets pregnant or not, which is what is the main outcome that matters to most people. But one of the other things we've also tracked is how healthy are those pregnancies and what about outcomes for newborns? And, and so what happened was that uh, we had uh, over 200 couples that were randomly assigned to having a weight loss intervention with an exercise program versus just doing exercise alone. And that exercise was not so rigorous that people really changed their weight very much. And they did that for four months. And then after that four months, they went into a standard treatment that we would usually use for couples with otherwise unexplained infertility. Yeah. And what we found at the end of that trial was actually that that weight loss intervention did not improve outcomes in terms of did you get pregnant or not. And I think that's incredibly important because while weight loss may have a number of other health benefits, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that weight loss takes a lot of time and many people are not going to be successful with it. Yeah. And so are we going to withhold treatment waiting for someone to do that without solid evidence that it improves outcomes? I think that position becomes very difficult to justify. And so when there are programs around the country that say, you need to get your BMI less than X or we're not going to treat you, that's, that's a really tough position to defend with that trial that came out as well as a number of other ones. Um, however, when we looked at some of the pregnancy outcomes, it does appear that there may be a slight increased risk of some complications. And our study really isn't powered to look at all those outcomes. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we can say, while weight loss may improve some pregnancy outcomes and, and most certainly has some long-term health benefits, withholding treatment for weight loss doesn't make any sense. And yeah. the time that you spend doing it may actually make things worse because one of the biggest challenges that we face in infertility medicine is simply the impact of age on outcomes. Okay. Uh, it, while both true for male and females is more true for the women. Yeah. Is age the biggest factor then? I would say age is one of the biggest factors that yeah. we face. Um, naturally, fertility declines with increasing age. Mm. Um, that's a, a, and again, I'm, if I'm getting off on the weeds here, you can let me know. Oh, you're but, good, yeah. Uh, but unlike men who are making sperm throughout their adult lives, women are born with all the eggs they're going to have. Okay. And they lose them throughout their adult life. And when they're all gone, a woman goes through menopause. Mm -hmm. That usually happens in the early 50s. But there's a huge variation between women. Some women yeah. go through menopause before they're 40. Some don't until they're in their late 50s. Gotcha. So that's like a 20-year interval when yeah. natural fertility goes away. Um, and the average age of a natural pregnancy is generally in the early 40s to mid-40s at the latest. Right. And so um, if someone comes in and they're in their mid-40s, that's something that's going to be very difficult for me to help outside of utilizing donor eggs. Sure. And so 
Yeah, so when, when someone comes to me in their late 30s, for example, and they are struggling with obesity, they're probably a lot better off pursuing treatment earlier rather than waiting for, for weight loss. Waiting to get in shape because it's, like yeah. I said, and then also not just getting in shape but then keeping that weight off too, right, for the pregnancy. and, and all, I mean, there's... Yeah, and that's related to it too. Certainly there are differences in weight gain during pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that, that, that's a factor that, that people might not be aware of? Obviously, age is probably the one that most people are aware of, but is there anything else that, other than age and obesity, that just are the, kind of the main factors that, that stand out? Well, you know, um, again, hoping not to get off into the weeds too much. You know, that would be one of the bigger um, overriding issues that we see. The, the, and those two are really pretty big ones because yeah. certainly obesity is a, is a real challenge in our society today for a variety of reasons. Uh, but certainly a, a variety of societal factors have influenced yeah. when people want to have children today. Right. You know, um, advancing careers, uh, later uh, marriage or later decisions to have children, um, all factor into that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like to that point, right, it's, it's not, you know, gone are the days where, where mum just stayed at home, dad went to work, right? And, and sure. like it's, not, it's a lot different now. And like you said, there are plenty of females out there who are, advancing their careers and, and rightly so and they, they you know the culture is no, no longer you should stay at home and clean the dishes and make dinner for dad to come home it's it's building a business for yourself right and building a name for yourself and we need that right um, absolutely but like I said there's I mean there's stress in that too right you know when you're at home I'm not to say that there isn't stress if you're just a stay at home mom but if you're working all the time um, you know and, and I know many friends of mine who are now in their 30s that they're like they were still working on their still working on their careers and they want to do that and they will have kids at some point but mm -hmm. it's not the focus which is great I don't have kids um, we don't plan to yet uh, my culture is to have kids kind of later as well whereas mm -hmm. in Oklahoma it seems to be like in your 20s for the most point you're for, for the most part at least what I've seen you're having kids um, but I'm sure you know with your line of work now it's probably would you say it's more common to have people coming to you in their 30s and late 30s and early 40s that are trying, that are having those issues or trying to have kids because yes. of the cultural yes. change? Yes, I, I would say yes. You yeah. Know, the, um, yeah, the the patients that I see are um, frequently in their 30s, sometimes yeah. in their 40s. Um, I do see some uh, uh, patients in their 20s. Mm. That's less common, um, and that's, of course, because infertility is less common sure. in those, it's going to be less common in those age groups. and. Um, and that it just depends on where you practice. You know, mm -hmm. when I was in practicing and, and doing training in Seattle, every patient I saw was in her upper 30s. Yeah. You know, and then in Oklahoma, I certainly see some younger people, partially because they're pursuing pregnancy at a younger age here yeah. than they are than they were there at the time. Uh, and you know, some other problems are more common here too, like obesity, which mm -hmm. um, in some cases interferes with normal ovulation and so I see these women at an earlier age for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that, that people generally can do practically that help or is it basically down to genetics other than what you've mentioned with obesity being a huge factor? Is there any other things before, and I'm sure there's phases, but just for the general people listening who might not be aware. Sure. You know, I would say the first is don't wait too long to seek an evaluation or treatment. Sure. Uh, you know, our general recommendation would be if you're under 35 and you've been trying for a year or more, mm -hmm. then you should undergo at least an evaluation, if not treatment. If you're over 35, then probably after six months of efforts without a pregnancy, mm -hmm. then you want to have an evaluation done. Yeah. And that, you know, that 
it's frustrating when I see someone that has struggled with infertility for five, six, seven, eight years, and now they come in at a time when treatment is going to have yeah. a lower success rate. I haven't done anything about it. I haven't been proactive to say, oh, I should probably well, get this it, fig- it, figured out. Sure. In, in fairness, too, I should say that that's also influenced by uh, insurance coverage ah, in the okay. U.S. and in Oklahoma. You know, so some states and some uh, uh, companies cover infertility care. Yeah. and it's mandated in some states. And so we have some uh, individuals in Oklahoma that work for a big company like yeah. Amazon, or, you know, that has uh, infertility benefits, or maybe they work for one of the right. bigger companies like, um, you know, Chesapeake used to have those benefits, uh, uh, Devon, places like that. And they would have an infertility benefit, but many policies in Oklahoma don't. And so yeah. I'm, I'm not going to blame the person who doesn't come in because they can't afford that it. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think of it. That, again, me being from the UK and having healthcare, we don't right. worry yeah, about that stuff, right? Like, your system is yeah, entirely different. Yeah, which is, um, that must, I mean, being on your side, I would have just be just be so frustrated of that stuff, right? Like, it's not their fault, you know? No. So, you know, because medical procedures, if you don't have insurance, generally cost a lot of money regardless of what it is, you know? Yeah. And that's the tough part, right? It's like... You yeah, know, with, you can't blame them for not coming in like to that point, right? If they don't have you know the means to have that done, right? And you know that's not just true with infertility. There are other areas of sure. care. You know, certainly mental health care is another area that's been extremely undervalued in yeah. our society. But you know, th- these are different decisions that we make as a society. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in Europe, you know, healthcare um, is much more expansive. Um, there are things that you, as a society, have chosen to invest in, whether that's better highways or, or a college degrees, yeah. you know, and those are decisions that have collectively been made in the U.S. We're not going to fund those things yeah. or, or really we're going to spend the money for them, but we're actually not going to pay for them. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you know, that's our, our big issue as well. Um, but you know, those are choices that we make as a society. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's frustrating that, um, so many people that need care can't get it because of insurance. And then there's also just an access issue in general, you know, in yeah. a, in a relatively rural state like Oklahoma, there just aren't enough physicians here mm-hmm. is, you know, part of that issue. And that's not just true in infertility care. That's true in just things like obstetrics. You know, I'm the chair of the OBGYN department. And so mm-hmm. uh, part of what I do is, is um, address issues with our OBGYN groups, our maternal fetal medicine groups. And yeah. there's shortages of, of those folks all over the state and, you know, whole counties where there's no OB care. Uh, to that point, do you know Katie Smith? Oh, yes, huh? We're really good. Well, I say that. I'm really good friends with her husband, Jason. Oh, uh, very good. That's yeah. so, it's such a small world. Uh, yeah, Jason was my assistant golf coach at SNU. Unofficial really? assistant golf coach. He volunteered. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. We very get, small world. Oh, such a small world. But, yeah, um, I get to hear about everything from her, right, and all the side, all the, 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 the things that's happening and right. how busy she is. And me and Jason basically try and keep away from her how much golf he plays. <laughs> uh, during COVID, he played a lot of golf because he couldn't go because he's a pastor, right? He couldn't go on, and his job as a pastor is to go on visits to meet people, and he couldn't do that because of covid uh so he played golf a lot and his golf game really improved <laughs> back to the normal now he's struggling at the moment but uh yeah that's funny there's such a small world that um yeah uh, katie and, smith is uh, is fantastic she's our section chief in general obstetrics and gynecology yeah and so she does a lot of the same things that i do mm-hmm. um she probably didn't spend quite as much time in school she decided that she was done with school sooner yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, She is the reason, actually, we bought our... She's the reason that my wife loves being on the Peloton because we bought... She wanted a new one, so we bought their old one. Ah, really? So I I have her to thank for my wife being on the Peloton at 5 o'clock every morning and waking me up. Uh, Anyway, tell me about... They are nice. They're the most just convenient things ever, and I tell everybody it's totally worth getting one. I'm totally part of the cult. Uh, come bringing things forward. Tell tell me a little bit about kind of like what you're focusing on at the moment, projects you're working on, research you're working on at the moment that you're kind of deep into and excited about and maybe some breakthroughs you're having. Sure. So one of the projects that we're working on now together with uh, uh, Dr. Val Baker at Johns Hopkins and then also uh, Ruth Lottie at um, Stanford University is a project looking at outcomes of pregnancies uh, from what are called frozen embryo transfer cycles. And again, if I get up on the weeds too much, and this seems too complicated, let me know. But we have been, as a, um, as a profession, very successful at being able to freeze embryos and then thaw them at a later time and transfer them into a woman's uterus in order to uh, achieve a pregnancy. Yeah. Which is a, a great breakthrough because it allows us stuff. to store embryos for long periods of time. The, the way that those cycles are done when you're actually going through the process of helping a woman get pregnant is you can do it one of two different ways. One is where you monitor a woman in her natural cycle. In other words, you just wait for her to ovulate. And when she ovulates, you do the embryo transfer. The other is to do it in what's called a hormone replacement therapy way. And the way that's done is I artificially create a menstrual cycle by giving this woman estrogen followed by progesterone, and then I do the transfer. Yeah. Again, I told you I'd be off in the it, weeds. I mean, it, the good thing but, is it's just a cocktail of stuff, right? But it's amazing because it works. And yeah, obviously so, the skill is in everything you've learned to do it. I'm glad we have people like you in this world. So the, the hormone replacement therapy way is the way it's usually done. And why is it done that way? Because it's convenient. It's easier for me to schedule it if I just give you medications rather than following you in a natural cycle until you ovulate. Yeah. So that's what most of us do around the country. But Dr. Baker's group uh, did some studies and recognized that women that had that hormone replacement therapy may have an increased risk of a problem called preeclampsia in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly the hint that that is there, but the only way you can really figure that out is by doing a large clinical trial where you randomly assign women to have those two different protocols. And Mm -hmm. then at the end of the day, see, is the risk for that problem called preeclampsia, which involves high blood pressure and involves risk for the mother and the baby, is that really higher when you use hormone replacement therapy? And it would be an incredibly impactful study because there are tens and tens of thousands of frozen embryo transfer cycles that happen in the U.S. every year. And there are that many more in Europe and around the world. Mm -hmm. So if if one of those protocols is really associated with a lower risk of preeclampsia, then that's the one that we ought to be doing. Mm And so this trial, while relatively straightforward, most definitely, as we talked about earlier, has the ability to impact our care and advance the standard of care. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a really exciting trial. Um, collectively, we've enrolled about 300 couples out of about 800 yeah. and something that we're going to enroll. But I'm excited about that one because it will change. It will change the practice of our, in our field. Yeah. That's the, that, that is the stuff, right? It's like... How can I, you know, if I'm a part of a change, right, for the better, and I, I'm a part of it, and we have a team that put, is put together, and it might not just be like you, it might be other people in you that are in your profession around 
the country around the world but if you're collectively working and researching the right stuff together somebody has a breakthrough it benefits everybody absolutely and, yeah, yeah. Like that's that's the beauty of it right it's not just like i'm not just working on this for me or my immediate family i'm working on this for the entire population sure it, that's that's incredible stuff it is and you know frankly if you're not being responsive to looking at population outcomes then these studies wouldn't be funded anyway right. you know the the amount of funding for women's health research is mm -hmm. unfortunately incredibly low and in infertility medicine it's even less yeah so there's a really small pot of money that all of us in our field are competing for to try to do these big clinical trials because you can't do a little local trial and yeah. answer a question yeah uh, so yeah you've got to be responsive to really a broad public health need and a, a broad impact on the field yeah with um coming back to obviously you know the the wall of fame and you're being inducted into that what and and coming from a public school obviously there's a lot of hope there for kids who are in public schools and, and, and our education system like kind of i guess what your kind of mother did for kids and you as well and kind of portrayed hard work how do you then give that message to the kids of the next generation of potential doctors, people who are going to replace you? How do you go about, I guess, giving them hope and showing them, you know, that they can do this? Obviously, they'll see your name and see mm -hmm. your bio and be like, oh, this guy did this thing. How do you put that into context for them to make it practical? Sure. Well, one person can't do that alone. Sure. You know, I, I think uh, part of it is... Um, energizing our teachers mm -hmm. through processes like this. I think um, our teachers in the Oklahoma City Public School and across the state are all incredibly hardworking individuals. And if I can be an inspiration to them or to any students, then that's fantastic. I think uh, part of it is being a role model too. You know, it's um, what you say doesn't matter as much to me as what you do. It's, it is really what you do that defines who you are. Yeah. And being a role model through showing that I've, that I've done those things by walking that walk, and then you are able to reach uh, some level of success, however you define that. Um, recognizing that hard work is a part of success for just about everyone, regardless of what area you're in. Yeah. And then, you know, to the students who, you know, um, again, impacting them on a broad level is hard from from you know this single award but um you know don't don't be afraid to take hard classes you you really have to push yourself you know if you're and i and i know that that is more challenging today and then we're just coming off the covid episode sure. but i got to be a much better student by practicing doing homework that's yeah doing the <laughs> stuff that you generally don't want to do right doing like the, the stuff you don't want to do yeah and, and then, you know, just, just the things you glean from that and from going through that process over yeah. and over again. Like if it's a math problem, how do I, when I see a problem that looks like this, what steps do I take next? Yeah. You know, when I read a story problem, how do I set it up? Um, when I read something, how do I figure out what is important in it? Can, you know, that, that's a skill that just gets better with practice. But, yeah. you know, because like when you're in med school or even in college, the reading assignments you get can be crazy. You know, just the, all the things you have to read. You can never remember all of it. How do you figure out what's important in that? Right. Breaking and that, that down. And that's the part that gets better through practice. What, um, the other thing, obviously, like, you have an extremely 
probably high stress stuff what you do you're very involved you're very busy it's a lot of I don't know the right word for it but it's very hard to do and you're extremely intelligent what are the stuff you do to just get away like what is your I mean email is my favorite <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot of those too but like what do you do to just kind of you know when you come home from a day of just researching all day and being busy for 12 hours like how do you get away how do you yeah. how do you separate that so you don't burn out and you don't you know well, um, to being addicted to everything that you do. Um, that, that can be really hard to do. And I yeah. admit, I'm probably not the best person to ask how they got that work-life balance thing figured oh, it doesn't, out. Work-life balance doesn't exist. It doesn't, I've given, I don't yeah. think that I really will ever be very good at yeah. that. Um, and in fact, sometimes on weekends when I don't, I, mean, I, I don't really know what I would do with myself if I didn't have work to do mm-hmm. all the time. But I, I try to make time to exercise, and I think that that's. Yeah. You're mentioning the the Peloton earlier. Uh, I've had a tread for a long time, and then they recalled it. And then, yeah, I also had to move at the same time, and so I didn't know what I was going to move this 500 pound treadmill. Right. And I thought I'll just let them take it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and actually, at OU, there's a couple of nice gyms. There's one right next to my clinic, and yeah. I just I just use that Peloton app, and I go get on the treadmill over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that, and then um, I've got three dogs, and I like spending time with them. They're uh, they're not terribly active dogs, and so they're good for my lifestyle because when I get home, I'm not ready to go on a long walk with them. Yeah. But one English bulldog and two French bulldogs, and so they're they're they excel at sleeping. Yes, which is good. Right? It's <laughs> yeah, so they, it's like I get home, they're, yeah. they're friendly. I don't need to you know do a long long walk. Um, and then, uh, you know, my, my kids are, are, are grown now, so they're not, uh, well, one of them is in the house still, but one of them is living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, mm-hmm. and I um, always enjoy having the opportunity to get together with him. Yeah. Do they follow in your footsteps into the medical world? Uh, no, okay. no. They... Uh, you happy about think, that? <laughs> well, I, you know, I would have been very proud sure. if they decided to pursue that, yeah. but I also recognize my wife's an OBGYN physician, too. And oh, so, wow. Okay. They've kind of grown up seeing how hard that is, and I think they decided that they really we didn't don't want, want to do any that. part of that. That's life. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, I, um, yeah, I was talking about my mom earlier, and you know, my mom had this uh, special power where she could just look at you and just crush you. Yeah. You know, just you had not put out a good performance, and that was all I needed. You know, that was enough to shake you to the core, yeah. and you would work harder. I did not inherit that power. And my kids are just like, if I'm not happy with their performance, it's like, eh. Let's go get ice cream. It'll be okay. (laughs) That's okay. It's glad to know you feel that way. But, you know, it doesn't really shake my psyche or anything. That's awesome. Uh, So so I didn't inherit that. So, no, they they did not pursue that. One of them is uh, working as an accountant in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So And then the other one's still in school right now, but not going into medicine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Finishing up then, I guess, outside of, you know, because it is fun to talk about you know, being a human being and having a life and, and outside of, 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 of work. Uh, do you have anything coming up that's a vacation that you're happy about or something that you're excited for that's not, you know, work-related? Uh, well, um, we are hoping to go to Europe again next year. Okay. I've been a few times, and it's I love uh, London, uh, and I don't even know if that's going to be the, on the itinerary yet, but I just loved going to Europe, Amsterdam, uh, having been from those areas, I know you know what I what I mean. They're I mean, fantastic. Architecture is great. Uh, yeah. History is it's incredible. Um, if you have any time, you know, and you kind of dive into Switzerland, Austria, the Alps. I mean, anywhere you go. And the good thing is, you can get pretty much anywhere. Yeah, like public transport's great. Ride the right. train, airplanes. Like it's 
if people haven't been, it's worth doing. And I stress you have to go for more than 10 days, yeah. right? Because you yeah. just get overwhelmed if you go in such a short period of time and you'll be frustrated because you're so close to going to Rome or Barcelona or somewhere, but you just need an extra day and you don't have it. Yeah. That's the tough part. Yeah, so. I agree. For if, if you're going to go to the expense of traveling overseas, you really need to make it worth figure it, out yeah. a way to stay long enough to make yeah. it worthwhile. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for taking an hour out of your day. Obviously, you're extremely busy uh, and, and come share some stories with us down here. Uh, final congratulations. Uh, I'm thank sure you very much. You're, you know, it's, it's one of many awards that you've won and, and will continue to receive as you go on through through your practice, through your research. Um, but I really appreciate you coming in. And it, it's great to be a role model like your mother was to you and you are to kids who you might never meet, but people will see you in this wall of fame they'll look at you they'll look at your bio look at the things that you've done long after we were on this planet and known that I can make a difference and I don't have to go to private school and I don't have to have a ton of money behind me through hard work you will get you know you'll make a difference so absolutely it's amazing that, that you know to see that and, and, and know you now and see what you stand for and I really appreciate you coming in um, for people listening how do they reach out? How do they, you joked about email. Is there a way that someone could, if someone's listening that just thinks, you know, I, I would love to meet this person. I'd love to talk to them about my career, where I should go. Um, how do they reach out? Sure. So um, you can call my office uh, or I can give you an email address yeah, as I can well. Yeah, put that in the description. Um, yeah. But the, uh, the, our office, our academic phone number there is 405-271-8787. And then email is carl-hansen at ouhsc.edu. Awesome. And then if I don't get back to your email quickly, just remember that you're in with a bunch of other ones. <laughs> yeah. <then you laughs> but get I'll get lot. to as quick as I can. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, for people listening, I'll post all the links in the description below, and we will catch you next episode. Cheers. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at OklahomaHOF. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and finally our third sponsor for today the oklahoma 988 mental health lifeline 988 is the direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with the trained behavioral health professionals that can get all oklahomans the help that they need learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com it's 988oklahoma.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.